Welcome to Working Class Heroes Radio, a show by working people for working people here in New York City. My name is Lupita Romero, and I'm one of your co-hosts tonight. And I'm Mel Gonzalez, your other co-host. Here's a weekly roundup of news. In many parts of the Americas, the new crisis of coronavirus is combining with the older ongoing crisis of climate change, as the earliest hurricane season on record is slamming through regions already struggling with spiking COVID cases. Tropical storm Isaias hit the east coast of the United States on Tuesday, killing at least six people, causing floods, fires, and tornadoes, as well as widespread power outages. In New York City, Con Edison reported that 210,000 customers had lost power, the second biggest power outage in the utility's history behind only Hurricane Sandy in 2012. More than 2 million people in the wider New York region were without power as well. Con Ed's blackout happened just as New York State's eviction moratorium expired, leaving thousands of New Yorkers without power and also facing possible eviction in the near future. On Thursday morning, climate and housing activists joined forces at a protest outside of Brooklyn housing courts to demand both a rent cancellation and that public utilities like Con Edison be placed under democratic public control. In Florida, where COVID cases spiked in July, authorities were forced to balance the relative danger of Isaias and the pandemic. In preparation for the storm, state officials closed some of the virus testing sites, even as infection rates were peaking, and they urged people who might normally evacuate for shelters to stay home or stay with their families and friends in order to avoid creating crowded conditions in hurricane shelters. 2020 is already the earliest hurricane season on record. Tropical storm Isaias, which started as a hurricane, is the fifth storm to hit the continental U.S., something that has never happened by early August in at least a century. While global warming doesn't necessarily increase the number of hurricanes, scientists have concluded that climate change is responsible for hurricanes becoming more intense and destructive. One week before Isaias, Hurricane Hannah ripped into Texas and Mexico, knocking out power for 200,000 people in Texas, which is also struggling with rising COVID rates and leaving 11 people dead or missing in Mexico. In Matamoros, hundreds of asylum seekers who have been denied entry into the U.S. were flooded out of their refugee camp when the Rio Grande rose by 12 feet. Many legal experts believe that people should never have been in the camp in the first place and that the Trump administration's Remain in Mexico program, which denies entrance to asylum seekers is a violation of international law. Protests and backlash from parents and educators is forcing city administrations to back away from reopening schools. This past Monday, thousands of educators and public school families took part in a national day of resistance against reopening schools in the absence of public health evidence that it is safe. The protest, organized by a coalition of teachers unions and other groups, including the Center for Popular Democracy and the Democratic Socialist of America, also included a number of other demands, including raising taxes on billionaires to increase education funding and replacing police in schools with nurses and counselors. The movement against premature reopening of schools won a major victory on Wednesday, 
when Chicago announced that it would begin the year with fully remote learning, just a day after the Chicago Teachers Union announced that it was preparing a strike vote to resist the unsafe reopening. The New York Times reports that of the nation's 25 largest school districts, only five now plan to open the school year with any form of in-person learning. Six of the seven largest will be online. If you're wondering which is the one city that is planning to reopen, it's New York. The same city that saw at least 79 Department of Education employees die from COVID during the last school year. And the same city that many public health officials believe could have prevented many thousands of deaths had they closed schools just weeks earlier, after the pandemic first broke out. Mayor Bill de Blasio is pressing ahead with plans for students to attend school part-time even as chronic underfunding for public education means that many schools have inadequate ventilation systems and no full-time nurse on site. Yesterday was the deadline for families to inform the Department of Education whether they plan to send their children to school part-time or will enroll in full remote learning. At the New York rally in March on Monday, among other powerful speakers ranging from students and teachers to parents and organizers, kindergarten teacher Frankie Cook talked about his fears about reopening schools. There will be no real socialization. Kids cannot play together. They must stay six feet away at all times. They'll have to sit at, for hours straight at a desk and keep their masks on all day long. Young children need physical care and proximity that cannot happen in this situation. Now imagine a child having a meltdown or crying. The teacher cannot hug them, cannot hold their hands. Imagine a child has a cut or needs a band-aid or a shoe tie. The teacher cannot do it. Furthermore, if we open schools and they open and shut every time there's an outbreak, that will be traumatic. If a teacher, classmate, or family member gets sick or dies, it will be more traumatic than remote learning. New York City's health commissioner resigns in protest of de Blasio's handling of the pandemic. Dr. Oxides Barbeau's resignation on Tuesday adds to an atmosphere of distrust. Tensions have been high between the mayor de Blasio and health department since the start of the coronavirus crisis, and they came to a head when de Blasio decided not to have the department lead the city's contact tracing program, as it had in previous outbreaks. Back in May, the New York Post reported another potential cause of conflict between de Blasio and Dr. Barbeau. At a time when city hospitals were running dangerously low on personal protective equipment, a police commander demanded that some of the equipment reserved for healthcare workers be given instead to police, leading Dr. Barbeau to respond. I don't give two rats asses about your cops. The Post story led police unions to call for her firing, and many observers believe this is when de Blasio, trying to appease police critics, tried to distance himself from the health commissioner. Legal workers and activists are protesting court reopenings and demanding rent cancellation as well as a tax on billionaires to fund rent relief programs. Writing for Jacobin, Walter Bragman and David Serona report that New York's 118 billionaires have seen their net worth increase by $77 billion since coronavirus hit the United States. Those billionaire gains in just three months are more than five times the size of the state's entire projected budget shortfall of $14 billion. As we mentioned earlier, the statewide eviction moratorium ended on Wednesday, 
And while the Tenant Safe Harbor Act extends the moratorium for those who can prove hardship due to coronavirus, thousands of other New Yorkers are now in near to immediate danger of homelessness. Thousands of eviction orders issued before the pandemic that were put on hold can now be carried out. The Legal Aid Society estimates that 14,000 New York City households could be impacted. We'll return to the issue of housing courts later in the episode. These threats of eviction come at a time when New York City is facing nothing short of a complete economic disaster. The Partnership for New York City, a business advocacy group, estimates that one-third of New York small businesses may never reopen and that these businesses have already lost over 500,000 jobs. In immigration news, Budget cuts across the country threaten the continued functioning of a number of organizations and programs that work with and represent immigrants in the court systems, which could lead to an increase in deportations. U.S. federal law currently does not guarantee immigrants the right to an attorney when seeking asylum or being deported. As Outlet Document reports, one of the programs under threat is the Liberty Defense Project here in New York State the only government program in the country that guarantees attorneys for immigrants facing deportation. And yet Governor Cuomo has repeatedly declared that he opposes raising taxes on the rich to fund the Liberty Defense Project, rent cancellation, and other vital programs. Finally, we conclude our headlines with a local story of protests that work. Like other delivery companies during the pandemic, UPS has had a very good year. The company increased its revenue by 13% in the second quarter and made close to $2 billion in profit just in these three months. But for UPS workers, it's been a different story. Rather than hiring some of the millions of people who are out of work, the company has forced its warehouse and delivery workers into massive amounts of forced overtime, even as the pandemic raged on earlier this year. Adding insult to injury, UPS has often refused to spend even a fraction of its increasing revenue to provide basic safety and sanitary conditions for its employees. At the company's building on Foster Avenue in Brooklyn, for example, over a thousand workers are forced to work in summer heat with a broken air conditioner and a leaking roof. So in late July, workers at the Foster Avenue hub who are members of the Teamsters Union, Local 804, organized a week of action to protest both their local conditions and wider issues of racial injustice gripping the country. On Monday, July 20th, over 100 workers participated in the international strike for Black Lives by rallying outside of the building to protest the manager's harassment campaign against their African-American chief shop steward. Then they continued to protest outside of the building for the rest of the week, media attention and support from labor and anti-racist activists. By the end of the week, the city's buildings department showed up and shut down the second floor of the hub. Anthony Rosario, another shop steward at the Foster Avenue building, talked to working class heroes about how the protests were a result of months of tensions building up among members of local 804. The members, again, the members are tired, the members are frustrated. We come to work every day 
And how do you feel safe when you have a, 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 a you go to a building where you, you don't know if the roof is gonna just give way, or you know, not to mention the the air conditioning that's been down for three years that hasn't been fixed. So you have so much going on, and you're dealing with racial injustice. You're dealing with a building that's falling down. You're dealing with with uh, a company that that you have to fight every tooth and nail just to get PPE equipment to try to protect its members. You're you're dealing with with uh, let's just say corporate America at its finest, you know, or at its worst, let's say. Um, and uh, what what else can you say? Everybody was just so tired and frustrated. This was it. We had our national day of action. We stood up for Black Lives Matter. We continued to protest all week long uh, against the company, and uh, something was finally done. And those are some of the news from this week. You're listening to Working Class Heroes Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM and also streaming on WBAI.org. We'll be right back. I can't keep it together. I usually don't show my emotions. But it ain't getting better Cause you can't be blind with eyes wide open And I see struggle, I see pain I see only the mess we made I see things that I can't change And it hurts my heart to say I cry the sons without fathers and the pain that the mothers hold deep inside and I'll fight for the future we're making we can change if we face it cause these tears won't dry so I cry See someone that cares for others. Oh, no, 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 no. Do I love myself more than my sisters and brothers? I don't know. Yeah, I've seen struggles, I've seen pain, I've seen beyond the mess we made. I've seen things that I cannot change, and it hurts my heart to say. I cry for the sons without fathers, and the pain that their mothers hold deep inside. So I'm Welcome back. That was Usher's newest single titled, I Cry. So there's been a lot of changes in our show in the last couple of months, and we wanted to take some time on today's episode to fill you in on what we've been doing and what you can expect from us in the future. 
as we continue to bring you the stories and issues of working class New Yorkers. But first, we want to introduce to you all a new issue that we're going to be investigating in the next month, the reopening of the court system in New York City, and what it will mean for thousands of New Yorkers who are navigating our city's criminal, civil, and housing courts. Our correspondents, Julian Guerrero and Yanni Guzman, will lay out the main forces and people who are behind this push to reopen courts as the city struggles to keep COVID cases on the decline. I'll hand it over to them now, but stick around. It's been over five months since New York City shut down to stop coronavirus from spreading. The virus would take the lives of more than 20,000 New Yorkers before infection rates were under control. Nearly a quarter of a million city residents have been infected by the virus. It's the worst crisis the city has seen since the 1970s. The unemployment rate is almost 20% and the city is expected to lose more than $100 billion from its economy. Some in power are desperate to restart and reopen the city, but not all New Yorkers agree. When it comes to the question of reopening New York City courts, Jared Trujillo, president of the Association of Legal Aid Attorneys, has his concerns. This is what he told me on July 20th, outside of Brooklyn Criminal Court. We're here in solidarity with low-income New Yorkers. We're here in solidarity with the national strike for black lives. to really just bring some humanity into the system, to really just recognize uh, that when we say Black Lives Matter, like we have to actually mean it. And as a city, we don't mean that Black Lives Matter when we decide to keep the housing, to to start peddling people uh, through housing court um, to start these eviction trials for no reason. We don't really care about Black Lives when the criminal courts aren't hearing critical matters. They're not hearing matters of people that have been caged at Rikers, who've had their rights deprived from them, um, and we're just peddling them through court just because the mayor blamed them, blamed the courts, quote unquote, not working for an uptick in crime. Like we're here uh, to really push back to show our communities uh, that we stand with them and we stand against the OCA's reckless decision to reopen courts prematurely without a real meaningful conversation with the unions. Jared spoke at the rally surrounded by tenant activists, legal workers and their unions who rallied against plans to reopen New York City courts. But let's back up a bit to give some context. Over the last couple of months, the corporate press has been reporting on an uptick in gun violence, prompting a response from Mayor Bill de Blasio. Because we're facing a perfect storm, and no one can doubt that, all of the combined crises and traumas together have created an aberrant situation where we saw crime uptick and a lot of the normal realities just weren't there to address it. We've got to fix that now. Thank God New York City has made so much progress on the health front. We got to keep that progress, defend that progress, but we also have to restart all the pieces of the criminal justice system to make sure that if God forbid someone has committed an act of violence, a means to do harm to their community members, that we can do something about it. So the bottom line is our criminal justice system needs to get back to full strength. Our courts not only need to reopen, they need to reopen fully as quickly as possible. 
The mayor insists that the recent gun violence uptick is due to the courts being shut down in response to the virus. He believes that reopening the courts will address it. Legal workers don't agree, and so they called for a protest on July 20th. Around 50 people showed up to voice their disagreement with over 500 people attending virtually over Zoom. Here are a few highlights from the rally, starting with our very own correspondent, Yanni. New York City Comptroller Scott Stringer was there as well. There has been no discussion in the court system about what's safe. There's been no discussion about how to protect not just the defendants, but also the lawyers who risk their lives every day making sure that people have a right to representation. Tenant activists also participated and spoke at the rally. Uh, my name is Esteban Haron. I am a tenant and a member of the Crown Heights Tenant Union, which is part of the Right to Counsel Coalition. Over the course of the past month, uh, the CHTU and the coalition has helped lead multiple actions out in front of Brooklyn Housing Court at 141 Livingston. Some of you have been there. As someone who suffered with COVID back in March, I can tell you firsthand that the decisions being made right now by the OCA and Judge Kenitaro in particular are shameful, flippant, and deadly serious. We are tired of privileged white men making decisions that result in the death of black and brown folks. We are tired of having to rally and march to simply assert that we have the right to exist. We stand in total solidarity with the attorneys and legal support staff that have stood with us. Tenants demand that you keep the courts closed. We will fight for an eviction-free NYC. We will fight to cancel the rent. We are united and you haven't heard the last of us. Thank you. It's funny, but emphatically not funny, that the day that we found out that they wanted to reopen housing court uh, for, uh, for these trials, the mayor was painting a Black Lives Matter mural in the next borough over. We are here because we don't give a damn about your hashtags and we don't give a damn about what murals you paint. We care about what this city actually does for low-income black and brown New Yorkers. We care about what OCA does for our clients. And we care about what OCA does for our members. If gyms are not open, if restaurants are not open to protect wealthy and white New Yorkers, why are we peddling low-income black and brown people through housing court and through, and through criminal court? Legal worker and 1199 union member Jalen spoke as well. He calls out a few important people. It is a shame that instead of Judge Fiore, Fiore valuing the lives of her employees, 
she succumbed to false narratives and made up political pressure for New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio and the NYPD to open up courts prematurely without any substantial safety plan. And to the Honorable Janet DeFiore, Chief Judge in New York, I have one word for you. Shame. To Chief Administrative Judge Lawrence K. Marks, I have one word for you. Shame. To New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio and to the NYPD, I actually have more than one word, but I'm just going to say shame. The people Jalen is calling out, Chief Justice Janet DeFiori, Judge Lawrence Marks, these are people who work for the Office of Court Administrations, also known as OCA. They are the judges in charge of reopening the courts. Now, the issue legal workers have isn't about refusing to work or open the courts. Rather, the issue is over whether the reopening of courts without enough safety measures will, as Mayor de Blasio says, continue to defend the progress New York City made on the health front during the pandemic. Legal workers are worried that the rush to reopen the courts are going to endanger the very same black and brown communities who are most affected by this overlapping crisis. Now, to be fair, the mayor did speak to this. So I want to call together all of the players. I've sent this letter this morning to the chief judge and the five district attorneys saying, let's all work together. Let's get this right. I want to convene everyone and figure out what can the city of New York do to help each of you and all of your colleagues to get this right. Because again, just a little beginning of the court system won't get it done. We need to find a way to get back to full strength. And there are obvious issues of health and safety. We want to help. We have a lot of spaces we can make available personnel to help address the health and safety issues. But I'm going to work with all of my colleagues the DAs, the chief judge, everyone in this system to get it right, because we owe it to the people of our communities. As of yet, the mayor's office has not released any plans on how to accommodate the courts during the pandemic. Let's take a short musical break. You're listening to Working Class Heroes Radio right here on WBAI 99.5 FM. My name is Julian, and let's get back to our segment. How did legal workers not see this coming? It seems that they were caught by surprise. This is what Ebony, a legal worker in Brooklyn, had to say. I think that we have been trying to speak with OCA and I think that while we thought that those talks were working um, and that we were on the same page, lo and behold they decided that we were not and wanted to call workers back into court um, in the ninth hour without giving the appropriate um, time. Um, to make sure that safety protocols were put into place. We're, we're talking about criminal court, we're talking about civil court. While I do think that they have been more lenient in terms of family court, we also need to recognize that many of the clients who are in the family courts also are intertwined with the lives and the systems of the civil court and the, and the criminal court as well. And so we can't fail to recognize that all of these systems are intertwined and they affect all of us as workers and clients and union members and families, brothers, sisters, um, children. 
This abrupt about-face by OCA is not making legal workers feel that they can trust the city to protect them. Jalen makes his point at the rally. But this isn't the first time we've seen politicians in the NYPD target specific populations and workers to use a scapegoat for their own political shortcomings. We will not lose another union member. And to the politicians and government officials, when it came to standing with defenders, you failed us by not giving us full pay parity. When it came to standing with over-police communities, you failed us by rolling back on bail reform. When it came to protecting New Yorkers from COVID-19, New York, and New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, you failed because of one of the weirdest pissing contests between a governor and a, a mayor. 32,000 people in New York City lost their lives. In New York, lost their lives. When it came to protecting her workers, Judge DeFiori failed. Several of her employees have died. She's being sued by every defender agency in New York City, and her own employees are filing a restraining order against OCA. And instead of listening, she decides to push forward. It's a shame. As stated before, the city has not published any plans on addressing these safety concerns. Knowing that these same communities, as Ebony says, are oftentimes entangled in the New York City court system, why would the mayor insist on reopening the courts? We'll have to hear more of the mayor's press conference to hear his logic for why the courts need to be reopened. A striking reality that there's a huge backlog when it comes to cases involving violent crime. Only 50% of firearms charges have even gotten to the point of indictment. And obviously, we need to go from indictment through the trial process and determining the fair resolution. And those who need to feel consequences have to experience those consequences in a speedier fashion. That's not happening right now. So is the mayor's argument sound? Well, the spokesman for OCA, Lucien Chalfant, called de Blasio's claims absurd, patently false, and ridiculous. Pat Cullen, the president of the New York State Supreme Court Officers Association, said the mayor was shifting blame to a state agency that has remained in operation despite a global health emergency. Even the New York Post, a conservative newspaper, has questioned de Blasio's claims that the courts are responsible for the gun violence. Combing through New York City crime data, the New York Post pointed out that only one person has been arrested twice over gun violence. Chief Administrative Judge Lawrence Marks argues that what's behind the uptick is a significant drop in arrests by the NYPD related to gun violence. Now, what Mayor de Blasio wants are for the courts to be functioning at their full capacity. But if the crime data doesn't prove that it's a court's fault for the spike in violence, why does the mayor stick to this argument? Who is pressuring de Blasio? Maybe a look at who would stand to gain from reopening the courts can help us figure this out. This is what tenant activist Esteban Heron said about this question. We are tired of having to rally and march to simply assert that we have the right to exist. And we sure as hell are tired of mostly white landowners influencing the courts and their administrators right now. Because we know who you're listening to and it's not us. So, as Gotham is reported, Counsel for the Rent Stabilization Association, Matthew Pasilkin, seems satisfied with OCA's measures to reopen the courts. For those unfamiliar with the Rent Stabilization Association, they are an organization representing some 25,000 property owners in the city. In other words, landlords. Now, another force in the city that might want to reopen the courts is the business community, who has always had an interest in keeping crime rates low. How else are they going to attract tourists, 
build new condos, and fill them with office workers if these white-collar workers in big tech or finance don't feel safe. This is what Jared Trujillo said when I asked him this question. We are an easy target to blame. We are the people that like stand up for the voiceless. We are the people that represent low-income black and brown New Yorkers. We are the people that represent immigrants that don't have a vote. Who is it easier to attack? The attorneys, the paralegals, the social workers, or the police? Like, who is it easier to attack? Over-policing or the people that protect people from over-policing? We are just a convenient political target. Um, I, you know, it, it's, it's emphatically ridiculous to suggest that any quote-unquote uptick in crime is because of the courts not working. It's just, you know, we're, we're the easy target, we're there, and that's who we decided to go for. Jared contrasts public defenders and legal workers with the NYPD. And though they are oftentimes on opposite sides in the courts, the NYPD on its own is under a lot of pressure given their response to Black Lives Matter protests. With police morale so low, the NYPD might also be interested in blaming the courts. NYPD Commissioner Dermot Shea has repeatedly blamed the spike in crime on bail reform, as well as the demands to defund the police, the recent police reforms enacted in response to the protests, and the cut to the NYPD's budget as the reason for the spike in crime and gun violence. Even though these claims have been widely debunked, the NYPD brass and their union leaders continue to repeat these talking points to shift blame from the department. So perhaps the mayor is taking a page out of their book. He's faced a lot of criticism for delaying the initial shutdown, and his defense of the NYPD despite video after video of mass police brutality has shrunk his base of support with progressives. Even big business is unhappy with de Blasio's lack of collaboration to restart the economy. So while the mayor would agree with progressives like Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who point to the unprecedented social chaos and economic fallout being at the root of the spike in crime, his decision to reopen the courts as a way to deal with it is where progressives and the mayor would disagree. Perhaps de Blasio figured, after losing support from progressives, that he could find support from the sections of the business community who have always backed law and order. Maybe police officers are manipulating statistics or engaging in a deliberate slowdown in reaction to the demands for defunding and abolishing police departments. Maybe the mayor is doubling down on addressing crime to avoid a power play from Governor Cuomo. It's not exactly clear, but the abrupt turn from the mayor to OCA on opening the courts is a little suspicious, to say the least. All right, y'all, I'm Robert Cuffey. I'm with the Democratic Socialists of America, the Afro-Socialist Caucus, and the Labor Branch. And I'm also a DC 37 union member, Local 371, Social Service Employees. We're standing up for the people at risk of eviction. We're standing up to the people being brutalized by the police, despite the fact that they stood up to say, don't brutalize us. And we're standing up against this entire system. But I'm gonna tell you this, I'm not a legal expert, but since the police can play judge, jury, and executioner with my people, I'll end with this. The whole damn system is guilty. And if your union isn't fighting, then we gotta take the fight up ourselves, right? Because who keeps us safe? Who protects us? Who protects us? We protect us, right? So. 
Between now and October 1st, we have some major things happening. You see now they're reopening these courts. Pretty soon they're gonna try to reopen the schools. Do the schools have ventilation? Can the schools keep our children safe? The schools can't keep us safe. ACS can't keep us safe. The courts can't keep us safe. It means there's something unsafe about the society we're living in. There's something sick about this society. We got a racist president who calls COVID-19 a Chinese virus. Is this a Chinese virus? I'm gonna tell you very clear, it's a capitalist virus. This is a virus that comes around when our society prioritizes property and profit over working people. And what we have to do is turn that on its head. Governor Cuomo said that we've been heard. Do you feel heard? Governor Cuomo said we gotta go off the streets because we've been hurt. Are we going home? Say hell no, we won't go! What this issue highlights are the priorities of a city caught in the grips of several overlapping crises. If there's ever an opportunity to see who runs this city, a crisis might be the time for revealing that. This is why we're going to continue to follow this issue and report on it from different perspectives. From legal workers demanding safe courts, tenants fighting to keep housing courts shut down, to the ways the city is handling pandemic relief for low-income New Yorkers. We'll be looking into all of this and more. So if you work in the courts or have to deal with them, we'd like to hear from you. If you have any leads on why the mayor is pushing to reopen the courts, who's benefiting from this, or any other relevant tips, give us a call at 929-352-0134. Leave us a voicemail and we'll get back to you. My name is Julian Guerrero, on behalf of the Working Class Heroes Correspondence Team. You're listening to Working Class Heroes Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM, and also streaming on WBAI.org. We just heard from our correspondents about the reopening of the courts. And this is an issue that's going to affect thousands of New Yorkers who are dealing with a variety of legal issues, not to mention the legal workers and court staff who run the courts day in and day out. What struck me the most about this interview is Jared Trujillo, the president of the Bronx Defenders, remarks on why it is that de Blasio is reopening the courts. One of the things they keep talking about is this uptick in crime, but that's not a verifiable fact that because the courts closed, we have an uptick in criminal activity. And so what he said about feeling scapegoated and that it's easier for de Blasio to reopen the city without taking into account what legal workers, what public defenders, and the people who run the courts um, are facing in terms of health risk is, seems really negligent, and it seems like a continuation of what we're seeing across the city as de Blasio tries to reopen other parts of the economy, like schools um, and recreational areas. What was your biggest takeaway from the interview? Yeah, I think that that's such a good point, especially because a lot of folks that are participating in all these protests are also making the connection between opening up criminal courts and the whole moment that we're in with the Black Lives Matter protests and the push to defund the police and abolition. So it's, it's not just that folks are 
are rightfully afraid of of how the courts are going to impact people in terms of their their safety but the courts are also you know just like another arm of of the policing system and you can really tell when the mayor then uses policing and crime um, to talk about why we should we should open them and it makes a lot of sense that people are putting all these connections right now and i feel like that really came across in, in a lot of what folks were saying one of the last things that I feel really hit home for me is how a debate on criminality and the reasons for criminality, even though we can't prove those facts, um, is shifting the debate away from what is legitimate health risks with an opinion about criminality and whether the criminal justice system should continue going or not. And I think that I think that there's a way in which the debate being shifted that way can actually keep people trapped in almost a debate of morality around criminal justice issues, as opposed to the, um, the ongoing health risks that we know are actually happening and that have played out in other cities when other cities have tried to reopen uh, different parts of the economy and different parts of, of cities functioning. And so I think that it feels a little bit like a trap. And because we are in this moment of racial tensions and a social movement that is trying to push back against the police, and we've seen this history of the Blasio wanting to tread that line and not ruffle the feathers with the police unions, um, really makes sense why they're sort of hinging on this debate around whether or not the criminal justice system um, and other court systems should start to get going instead of focusing really on avoiding a second wave in the way that we've seen it in other cities. So that's definitely, you know, something that um, I hope we can keep taking up in future episodes. Definitely. And it's really, it's really frustrating to hear the mayor and the commissioner talk about the, the bail reform laws in particular, because that was such a, that was such a huge push to, to try to, you know, make, make people understand that the way that money bail works was unnecessary to be incarcerating folks all the time. And so now to, to go back on that in the light of, of COVID and to use that as a scapegoat for, for, for the rise in crime that like you're saying is not verifiable. It's just such a step back. And so it's, it's frustrating to hear that now. Yeah, definitely. And I think that the way that the pandemic and social issues that are ongoing are connecting is something that we're going to keep seeing. And here at WCH, we are going to be covering this issue for the next couple of weeks. And we would love to hear from you, our audience. Right now, phones at WBAI are down, and so we're not able to answer people's calls live the way that we usually do and the way that we would like to. But if you're listening to this show and you have a story to tell, please give us a call and leave us a message. It could be a story of yourself, someone you know, a comment or a question about the issue of reopening the courts in New York City. And we'll definitely try to address it in next week's episode. Our number is 929-352-0134. Again, that's 929-352-0134. You can give us a call, leave your name and voicemail, and we'll give you a call back. You can also find us on social media at WCH Radio on Twitter, 
and Instagram. So please feel free to send us a private message, tag us on a comment, or leave us a post. And we'll definitely try to take it up in the next couple of episodes. Welcome back, everyone. That was Baltimore by Nina Simone. We've been on WBAI 99.5 FM for three months now. If you've listened to our show in the past, you know that our goal is to highlight some of the pressing issues working class New Yorkers are facing while highlighting their voices. We want to take some time tonight to give some updates on some of the stories we've covered so far and fill you in on what you'll be hearing from us in the next months. At the beginning of the COVID pandemic in March, we began our series entitled coronavirus and class war. And our first couple of episodes naturally focused on how the city was coping with the rise of COVID and having to shut down for quarantine. In episode two, we spoke with Isabel Barter, who's a tech and healthcare worker in Portland and who was 3D printing personal protective equipment for local hospitals and essential workers in the midst of a national shortage. Isabel has continued to create PPE. And she's also continued her mutual aid efforts as a paramedic during the Black Lives Matter protests, which have intensified in recent weeks. She was actually able to purchase an ambulance van, which is now being used to care for protesters who've been tear gassed and brutalized by local police, as well as federal agents of the Department of Homeland Security that were sent out there to clear the streets and who have reportedly been using chemical agents and rubber bullets. Another aspect of COVID that we covered throughout our early episodes was the ongoing housing crisis. And we were able to speak to tenant organizers in the Bronx, Manny Parilla and Alvaro Franco, as well as Jasmine Sanchez from NYCHA Houses and attorney Aaron Neff about rent strikes, the history and development of our housing laws and their continued necessity today. Since then, Tenant organizations have predicted that over 50,000 evictions are slated to occur in the following months, as the eviction moratorium comes to an end this week, just as the unemployment stimulus fund dried up at the end of July. Meanwhile, the push to cancel rent continues, 
as does the rise of tenant unions and eviction blockades across the city. Finally, in the last month, we have been covering the National Rebellion and Black Lives Matter movement, which was sparked by the murder of George Floyd in June. Protests throughout the country and this city have continued. We covered some of the initial protests in New York City, including a weeks-long encampment protest outside of City Hall, which called for the city to defund the NYPD by at least $1 billion from their $6 billion operating budget. After the disappointing city council budget vote, which advocates say failed to defund the NYPD in any significant way, we spoke with Tatiana Hill and Khalil Solker about the challenges and successes of organizing the space. The encampment was ultimately evicted by riot police at 3.40 a.m. on July 22nd. Police arrested at least seven people. However, activists have continued to provide mutual aid and serve as a hub for continued protests to defund NYPD. Most recently, they organized a 24-hour march at which, as we reported on last week, NYPD's secretive warrant squad kidnapped at least one protester. was President by Las Cafeteras. As we mentioned earlier, 
we will be covering the reopening of the courts, which includes housing, civil, and criminal courts across the city in the next few episodes. So tune in to our next episode on August 22nd to hear more on that. Until then, please give us a call and leave us a message if you have a story, comment, or question about this issue, and we'll try to address it on next week's episode. Our number is 929-352-0134. Again, that's 929-352-0134. You can leave your name and number and we'll try to give you a call back. You can also find us on social media at WCH Radio on Twitter and Instagram to let us know what you think about this episode. Before we wrap up this show, we want to share a bit more about how you can stay in touch with us off the air. One of the goals of this radio show is to create community with you, our listeners, on and off the air. Our team of correspondents have been out on the streets covering many issues and talking to people across the city. But not everything makes it into the show. So we want to encourage you all to go to our page, wchradio.org, where you can sign up for our weekly newsletter and to follow us on social media if you'd like to get in contact with us and send us your leads, stories, and feedback. One of the perks of signing up for a weekly newsletter is that we often include our roundup of weekly headlines, as well as some of the written reports from our protest coverage that, that we publish through Medium and other outlets. And if you follow us on social media, you'll see that we often have live coverage through Instagram or Facebook from the protests that we attend and the interviews that we conduct with people. Working Class Heroes is an independent media collective made up of and led by working class people of color. We joined WBAI because of their commitment to creating community radio, free of corporate interest. And that means that the station relies on community listeners and monthly supporters to keep it going. So the best way to support our work and the station is by becoming a monthly donor by signing up as a WBAI buddy in support of Working Class Heroes. So show us some love for as little as the cost of a cup of coffee, which is somewhere between two and four dollars. But feel free to give as little or as much as you can or are able to. Either way, we're forever grateful for your support and for listening to us week to week. We are out of time for today, but we'll be back on August 22nd. Until then, stay healthy, stay safe, and as always, in solidarity.